lot of people here. Good morning, E. Good morning, everyone. It's actually afternoon. E, how was your Australia day, buddy? Um, pretty uneventful, to be honest. I uh, didn't really do much, which is a bit unpatriotic of me. Yeah, that's the worst. We've got, a, we've got a public holiday tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably do. Oh, I don't know. I, I just sort of spent most of yesterday in bed, to be honest. I was feeling a little bit under the weather. I actually planned to be sort of somewhat productive rather than going out and partying or anything like that, but not even those plans kind of worked out. Good morning, everyone. How was your Australia today, buddy? Um, yeah, to be honest. I uh, didn't really do much. Oh, I can hear Kill, kill the commie. Kill the commie. It's literally the commie. The only commie in this Discord. <laughs> Uh, watch yourself, mate. Uncle Xi Jinping, for a reason. I, Uncle Xi Jinping, how's that virus going? Oh, oh, no, it's going great. He's he's communist, but with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> hello, um, hello. Yeah. Hey, this, this is this is just a this is just a um a a question yeah. for, uh, for for economics yeah. explained. Would would uh, would um Andrew Yang's um thousand dollars per month actually work economically and do you think he should be president um so that's a really good question and i mean that's kind of two questions in one but you know what i'll let you get away with it um so uh and also between the guys on discord and also the guys over on the live stream let me know if the audio has been a bit weird because i've played around with some settings so i think it might be a bit funny um yeah, and, killer 76 kind of like mute your I can hear the background noise. Wait. Ah, uh, yeah, that's my computer fan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so just uh, if you are being noisy, just uh, you know, um, be be somewhat quiet in the background. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, for what he said. So, um, yeah, look, uh, I think a big um, common criticism that a lot of people make about Andrew Yang's thousand dollar proposal is, well, wouldn't it just raise uh, inflation? Uh, you know, wouldn't sort of everything just become kind of a thousand dollars more expensive per month and effectively we're kind of right back where we started uh, and yes and no in, in a sense So if we were looking at an economy where it was that was all of the income that someone received uh, And that was the pure determinant factor of how much someone would have the buying power to spend uh, Then yes, yeah effectively it kind of doesn't achieve nothing. It, it's, it kind of achieves nothing um, you can't just sort of give people digits and expect it to actually mean something for an economy. But still, uh, this is is supposed to be on top of what people earn. So the idea is, you know, obviously if you're a struggling single mother, um, you know, you're probably not going to be bringing in much. Let's say sort of $2,000 a month. Um, you'll, you'll get this and, and you'll get a 50% increase in your salary. So that makes a huge difference to someone you know, that's probably struggling a little bit more than the average person. Yeah, but surely wouldn't you be also pulling money out of the economy through things like VAT, which is something that we have in Europe a lot more. Um, yeah. So his, well, I mean, his plan to, 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 to fund those, and, you know, it's important to sort of understand where he's getting that money from, is, is of course, you know, higher taxes on, on wealthy individuals and businesses, but also taxes on things like, uh, you know, personal data, things of that nature. So it's actually quite interesting. It's quite a modern approach to, you know, things that are effectively ours that companies are getting value out of. I, I really quite like the personal data thing because effectively, you know, your online profile, um, your sort of personal data is yours. It, it's your property. 
if nothing else, it's your intellectual property and companies use that for their own profit. So in a sense, they should probably pay for it. And that's one of the big sort of money makers that a lot of, uh, you know, Andrew Yang supporters are saying he's going to get the money from. Now, as to whether it's actually going to impact the economy, yes, I think it would. Yes, it will increase inflation, but it is going to uh, do what its desired outcome is, which is kind of to level the playing field between very, very top earners uh, and, and sort of bottom earners. Now, if I'm bringing in $20,000 a month, that extra $1,000 a month, okay, sure, that's nice, I suppose, but it doesn't mean anything compared to what it's going to mean to someone bringing in $2,000 a month. You know, it's an extra 5% on top of my income as opposed to 50% on top of my income. And what it's going to mean is, is let's say that sort of generates, uh, you know, on average, it's going to mean probably about, you know, 10% more money in, in people's pockets on, on any given sort of uh, annual kind of basis. Um, and that means, you know, you're probably going to see with it, let's say 10% inflation. Uh, and that is a very, very oversimplified way of, of calculating it. But let's just go with that as kind of a worst case scenario. Now to the people that really need it, they get 10% inflation. Sure, not great but they've got a 50% increase in their you know, income, uh, which means effectively, you know, they've got 40% more purchasing power than they originally had. Now for, for our mega sort of rich person, uh, they have $21,000, they got a 5% increase, but 10% inflation, they have 5% less purchasing power than they originally had. Now for someone bringing in $20,000 a year, most of the time those kinds of individuals, uh, sorry, $20,000 a month, those kinds of individuals aren't buying and spending it all. They're, they're normally not living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, most of their income goes into savings or investments. And of course, it's different for every individual, but their marginal propensity to consume versus their marginal propensity to save, meaning every extra dollar they get, how they sort of split it between savings and spending is much, much more slanted towards saving. You know, rich people tend to save and invest more just, you know, because they have the ability to and they also have sort of, I suppose, the education and the desire to. Uh, and that means that effectively uh, it doesn't necessarily have as, as sort of adverse outcomes as what sort of people necessarily would see it as uh, because the people that will go out and spend money are going to do it, which is fantastic, which is good for the economy. Uh, and the people that were going to save and invest the money anyway, uh, you know, look, they still have the ability to, uh, and maybe it's sort of like a sneaky tax on, on those sort of high income earners uh, in the form of sort of reducing their kind of overall wealth in, in some level of increased inflation. So that's my very Ooh. roundabout way of saying, oh. yes, uh, I think it actually sort of has some uh, economic merit, and it shouldn't be discredited altogether. Will I think you? Do I think he'll be president? No, uh, no, he won't. Uh, do I think he should? Well, look, I mean, he, his ideas are certainly novel, and I think having these kind of candidates that are pushing the the, the barriers for you know, we, we've had certainly candidates on the right that have pushed some really sort of crazy you know economic ideologies that are sort of more conservative in nature. Uh, so I think it's 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 probably refreshing if anything to have you know equally sort of um out there candidates on the left pushing you know sort of some really progressive ideas will they ever get enacted yeah maybe in the future um, but it's got to start somewhere and i think it's it's if nothing else it's really good for for us conversation i mean uh, i am a i am a, a massive fan of andrew yang opposed to I don't know, someone like sanders i mean because uh, i am from ireland and government spending i find like i mean what the reason that i really like andrew yang's proposal is that like you are actually bringing money much more into the hands of people so like they can spend it on things like maybe they can make the choice to spend it on healthcare if they want 
because um, say in Ireland we have one of the most expensive and one of the most inefficient health systems in the world which is failing drastically we are currently building a hospital which is going to cost 3 billion euro um, and it is going to be the most expensive per bed because we've just built in such a shit spot uh, I think I think that governments do tend to be uh, and I mean just just like after watching your uh, your video on the Soviet Union and um, that's also well it was very interesting and I was thinking about I think the public services do tend to lean towards being very inefficient and not cost effective and that is why I am a very big fan of Andrew Yang's because I think he will be uh, hoping to like you know cut down the bureaucracy more you know, just give people the money spend it on whatever you want and I think that will cause a very big increase in the economy because people will be spending that not on saving not on buying you know like Lamborghinis or things they'll be spending it on like capital based goods you know groceries consumer goods which will then cause a massive increase in those sort of markets I, I, I think well I think um you know, sometimes that, that, that's a very sort of optimistic approach. And you know what? To be honest, I think the average person is probably going to be a big old idiot with the money. Uh, you know, uh, people do tend to, to be quite dumb with how they spend money, especially if it's given to them for free. And I know that's an overgeneralization, but uh, it's something, it's a position that I'd be willing to defend. Uh, but, you know, irrelevant of that, it at least gives people the control. So it's certainly, a, you know, it's a very sort of um, social policy in a sense that it's, you know, basically giving out free money, but it has the twist of, hang on, well, you get to determine what is of value. Yeah. Uh, and it that, is still preserving that like free market values yeah. yeah. And um, I actually sort of had a good question. Now, I know this is off the topic of, of the Soviet Union, but uh, I've got a day off tomorrow so I can actually run the stream for a little bit longer than I normally would because I don't have Yay. to get to bed. <laughs> yes. Uh, which I know is, is, I always feel really bad when I have to cut it short, but um, I, I upload these videos sort of quite late at night and um, normally I have to get up quite early in the morning, but uh, today, no such luck. So, you know, we can get off topic a little bit more. Someone uh, over on the YouTube lives... Yeah, oh, no such dislike. I don't know. Anyway, don't listen to me, man. Come on. Um, I just work here. Uh, anyway, so someone over on the YouTube live stream said, uh, shouldn't California receive north of $1,300 a month because of the higher cost of living? Uh, really great question. So uh, I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. Krutar Bat. Bart. Anyway, um, I tried. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think they should. And here's the reason why. If someone is struggling to live in a high cost of living area, like let's say Southern California, uh, and they're sort of reliant on you know, government handouts, it should be an incentive for them to move to areas with lower cost of living where that money can go further. The knock-on effect of that is that these lower cost of living will have sort of a, a involuntary kind of boost to their, their economy because suddenly they have uh, an influx of cash in the form of this $1,000 a month into their local market, um, but also sort of more uh, popularity with people sort of moving there that, that may have otherwise, you know, decided to stay in a high cost of living area like Southern California because of employment opportunities and things of that nature. So massively oversimplified, um, but I don't believe ever that you should tailor it because, you know, let's let's run the case study to, to its hypothetical end. Um, let's say that, yeah, if, if you have a region like Southern California with an incredibly high cost of living and you sort of say, okay, well, you know what, we'll make this, this government handout $1,300 a month. Well, suddenly it's going to become even more popular. More people are going to want to move there because they get more of the government money to offset their living expenses. And, you know, that means more jobs. That means a, a more developed market, which means uh, people are going to want to move there. 
and it also means higher costs of living, which means the government's going to have to say, well, okay, well, we need to raise the pension thing even more now. Uh, well, sorry, the freedom dividend even more now because living expenses are even even higher and it becomes like a self-fulfilling uh, fulfilling prophecy. It's a, it's a dangerous spiral. So I think a, a flat kind of generic $1,000 a month is part of the beauty of the plan. Uh, its simplicity is kind of one of its biggest virtues in the sense that it kind of lets um, the guiding hand of the market do its thing in a very social way. Uh, it's actually quite remarkable. As, as a case study, e even if it's probably not something that uh, the United States in particular of all places is ready for just yet. Also, um, <clears throat> this is just a question personally to you because you are uh, an Australian. I've been hearing a lot about this. I, I take a very big interest in sort of the rise of China and how they're becoming increasingly more like imperialist and i've been hearing that um they are often like buying up very large assets in australia and influencing your democracy um do you think that this is a like this is a big issue so um two things that i want to sort of really define here is there's a difference between the chinese communist party and chinese people okay um, now, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is this is nothing to reflect on the Chinese people. This is entirely the government I'm talking about here. Yeah, and look, I mean, there are instances where Chinese people will buy up a lot of Australian assets. You know, things like homes and um, you know businesses and things of that nature. Particularly, uh, particularly our homes. Uh, so it's a it's a phenomenon very very widely seen in you know Sydney, Melbourne, and also a lot of Canadian cities like Vancouver, Toronto, Quebec. Um, that you know there's well, a lot like, of that, lot is, that of, is much more to kind of hold assets out of the country though that's not actually like to move in isn't it that's right and the actual purchase of assets within the country by you know businesses that are let's say directly uh, affiliated with with china it's very limited it's very tinfoil hat um no one sort of has you know no one beyond you know like uh very sort of conservative like oh you know take your germs kind of people um really sort of give that much merit it's 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 a sort of a non-issue um you know there could be something to be argued about you know a lot of these people sort of driving up property prices and things like that um but am i sort of scared of of chinese influence in, in our nation no um not really i think what about the buying up of water so like the issue of uh, of of large Chinese investors from Hong Kong coming in and buying large amounts of uh, dam water um, and then reselling it off to farmers again, sort of like a middleman and like price, price gouging during, during a drought. Do you think that's a problem? So yeah. I think if, some, if they weren't going to do it, someone else would. Australia doesn't have an issue of, uh, when it comes to water, and water uh, management is, of course, a very topical issue with our bushfires, uh, and it was sort of a very topical issue this time last year with, with severe droughts causing uh, the Murray-Darling Basin to be completely um, ruined, pretty much, uh, which is sort of our primary water source for a lot of agriculture in New South Wales, which is the, you know, it's sort of the most populous state in Australia. Uh, now, that is... I would argue not an issue of Chinese investors. I would argue that's an issue of domestic policy failure. Um, and mm. you know what? Uh, sure, you know some Chinese investors uh, took advantage of of this domestic policy failure. But 
um, you know, there were just as many Australian investors that did exactly the same thing. They're a very convenient scapegoat because it's kind of like, ooh, this weird, mysterious, you know, crazy rich Asian person that, you know, is very sort of easy to, to, to use as kind of this villain. Um, but that's sort of a lazy man's way of, of looking at sort of this British problem. I don't think they're doing it to, to sort of wield some kind of, of influence so much as they are looking to, to make money, uh, you know, outside of their, their nation, which is obviously highly regulated. Uh, and I think if we give them the ability to do that, that's not their issue, that's our issue. Uh, and I think it's more so a failing of, of state governments, um, that whole water crisis. But of course, that, that's extremely topical to, to Australia. Uh, and I suppose it's probably outside the scope of relevance to, to a majority of people here in this chat. So, um, well, well, I mean, China um, is being very like influential, especially like, for instance, they're trying to influence the EU. I mean, they've been buying up huge the huge assets, for instance, in countries like Greece, who are very economically poor, which which then, for instance, Greece is vetoing EU laws which are going against China. And I think that's a major concern. And also there's something something else I wanted to speak about, is farmer subsidies. Because um, I am half from New Zealand, and um, um, according to my dad, there's no farmer subsidies in New Zealand, and they have very efficient farms. And I'm thinking to myself, surely the government shouldn't be propping up failing businesses surely that's very counterintuitive to the economy and surely that's just there to buy votes yeah really good question so um this is actually something that's not necessarily topical just to australia but actually more so the united states uh, and you know i guess by effect of the soviet union we'll try and tie it back into what this q a session is actually about <laughs> not too subtly um but uh yeah look i'm not sure specifically about uh, new zealand but obviously agriculture well, no, this is just about farmer subsidies in general okay Perfect. Yep. Good. I love it. All right. So um, I'm not sort of, yeah, again, not sort of super well versed in, in New Zealand, but um, agriculture in New Zealand is, is one of their primary industries, you know, um, yeah. the wool and, and, and a lot of sort of things because you have very, very fertile land and probably not a huge amount of, of other things. Like you're not blessed with the same kind of minerals and, and iron ore and, and oil and gas like we are here in Australia or other countries are around the world. Um, but you are really, really good at farming. So you do, in a sense, not really need to, to subsidize farming as an industry. Now, the reason that governments do this is not because it's a good economic policy, not because it's gonna make the country richer, uh, not necessarily even because it is going to you know, buy them votes or anything like that. Farmers represent a tiny portion of the population. There are much cheaper, much more effective ways to buy votes than you know, giving subsidies to farmers. What it does do, though, uh, is offer food security. Now, food security is something that's um, obviously, you know, an economic issue in, in the worst kind of cases, uh, but it gives an economy uh, a good sort of, well, it gives a nation a good sense of security that it's not dependent on foreign nations to feed itself. And that's why countries like, you know, the USA uh, in particular will give huge subsidies to, to corn producers uh, and things of that nature, not only because it can feed an economy, it's a very sort of high density, highly energetic sort of food source, but it can also be turned into things like ethanol to, to use for, for power and, and things like that in the worst kind of case scenarios. So they want to maintain that kind of capacity. Now, if left to their own devices, uh, the uh, United States farming industry would kind of collapse. It, it wouldn't be able to compete worldwide. Uh, and the USA would kind of see that as a really bad thing 
because it wants to maintain its ability to, in the worst case scenario, if all trade was kind of cut off, it wants to maintain its ability to feed itself. You know, every great economy is about three days, uh, three days of hunger away from collapsing, and they, they know that. Um, so that's why they do it. Uh, now, the knock-on effect of that, especially in the USA's case, is, you know, when you're looking at things like corn, uh, in particular, corn's the one that's sort of, they're, they're really big, um, sort of primary farming uh, staple, uh, it does two things that are kind of interesting. One, when you're looking at export markets, the USA buys up all this corn at a guaranteed price that's that's quite high, and then it's, it's way more than it realistically needs because farmers know if they grow corn, they can get this amount of money for it, and it's pretty profitable, and it's pretty 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 damn good sort of deal. So they'll grow just a shit ton of corn, like so much corn. Um, and then the USA government kind of turns around and says, well... You know, we don't actually need this much corn. This is more than enough to feed our our economy. You sure we want to keep these farms going, but okay, well now we've got to export it. We've got to export a, just a massive amount of corn. So we'll take whatever we can get for it. Sure, it's not going to be the same price that we paid for it, but you know, whatever, we'll export it for you know twenty cents on the dollar. No worries. And that means that anybody that wants to produce corn in any other nation around the world, well, they kind of get screwed. Because either they have to subsidize or tariff the import of corn into their country, or they just kind of have to accept this import price. And, you know, if it's 20 cents on the dollar, well, there's no way that a local farmer in, let's say, Brazil or Australia or China could compete with that. So they kind of just have to buy the American corn. And the other thing, um, so that, that causes actually a lot of political contention. It, it's effectively like a, a reverse tariff. Um, but you know, you're giving it to your own country. So it's it's just as bad as in a sense devaluing your own currency. And it's something that America in particular actually gets themselves into a little bit of trouble with uh, in the international community. Their, their insistence on subsidizing corn and other agricultural products so heavily. Uh, and the next thing it does, particularly in corn is, uh, it means that high fructose corn syrup, one of the, the big byproducts of, um, you know, having an abundance of corn uh, instead of yeah, like, let's say, yeah, instead of like uh, normal cane sugar or something like that, which we have in like let's say Australia. So, so if we had so if we had a surplus of rice, let's make vodka, right? Well, well, you can make uh, you can make sugar out of rice as well. But brilliant, my, brilliant suggestion. But my God, it is just absolutely the most toxic thing that you can consume on a sort of daily basis, and they pump it into every goddamn thing because it's very addictive and it makes things taste delicious um but it's probably one of the big reasons that uh that you know you have a very fat uh populace is because you know if we that, subsidize that high yeah high oh, yeah. Also something else. this is also a very important thing which i've also wanted to speak to you about this is about healthcare in america because you know um lots of these democrat people that are saying okay we're gonna make a a, a state-run healthcare system, you know, further than, like, Obamacare. And um, this is something... Um, I actually believe this fundamentally will never work in um, America because, I mean, say, look at places like Europe. I mean, these, these different societies are fundamentally different. I mean, America very much values the individual, you know. Um, it's like, for instance, how there's so many obese people in America, like, say, in countries like Ireland, I mean, any any country really that has a social healthcare system, um, you know, people are almost, like, uh, forced to try to be healthy, you know, like, sugar is taxed, and I think that it would never fundamentally work in America, because um, it, would, it, would, uh, it would essentially get to a point where there's people 
um, where the government is paying for people to essentially kill themselves by consuming high amounts of sugar and uh, other vices. Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, in a sense, I suppose I mean, it's probably, it I would mean, end up the no government. One, no one, none of the Democrat candidates are actually discussing how they're going to do this. Like, for instance, take France. Um, they have an a, a, a extremely socialized healthcare system, um, but taxes are extremely, extremely high. But as a country, they accept, all right, we're paying very high taxes, but this is a worthwhile trade-off for our um, exceptional healthcare system. Um, and and say in Japan, um, healthcare is actually quite good, but that's because they have an extremely healthy population. So I actually don't think that healthcare would ever work in America. Um, well, I think uh, there's probably some sort of social issues there, and it effectively would boil down to probably the the American government fighting the American government on you know sugar versus as healthcare, and you know obviously they're sort of one and the same thing, but you know there can be taxes just the same as there are on cigarettes and alcohol, you know same could effectively be placed on sugar. I don't I don't think that's a, a particular limitation of America, but um, what I wanted to is, is uh, I am sorry to sort of derail and and redirect this conversation. Oh no, that's fine. I want to go back on to, to um, you know, the USSR because we do have some questions uh, around this. And actually, one of the, the really good ones was, uh, again, from the YouTube live stream, Raymond, oh, I can't pronounce any of your names, Gilberald. Isn't this being broadcasted on YouTube, like this Discord call? Yes, yes it, is. it is. All right, good. I was just, make, I was just, I was just wondering. Anyway, continue. Yeah, that's right. So be on your best behavior, guys. That's nah, okay. <laughs> um, so, um, so Raymond asked, uh, how much did the power plant accident in Ukraine affect the USSR's economy? So uh, Chernobyl, um, obviously, you know, it happened towards TV show. Yeah, I actually haven't seen it, but I heard fantastic things, and I do actually mean Definitely to watch, watch it. it. It is fantastic. Very good. Um, but, uh, so I think, uh, one of the big takeaways is, is, yeah, I mean, it obviously had sort of a pretty, um, you know, lasting impact. It was a huge disaster. And, you know, as with all disasters, they sort of cost money directly, but also, um, you know, have issues of ongoing ramifications for you know, people around the nation and obviously the cleanup and, and a lot of things of that nature sort of had sort of lasting impacts. Now, was it the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back of the Soviet Union? Potentially. Um, but it wasn't sort of the sole reason. I think the fundamental issues, you know, the things that we explored in the video were much more sort of a burden on the economy itself. Uh, and this was just a little, you know, a little sort of extra piece that kind of, you know, hurt it. Um, now, that all being said, I I'm not sort of a nuclear scientist. I, I don't actually sort of have that much of an understanding of, of just how devastating the sort of nuclear cleanup was. Uh, I know it was extremely devastating. Even today, it still has sort of lasting consequences. But, um, you know, uh, to say that in isolation caused any kind of sort of lasting issues, um, pr probably, you know, probably not. Um, but it certainly, certainly did not help. Uh, how does well, actually, um, in, in like Chernobyl's case, there was actually a much bigger kind of human cost. Like, for instance, there was lots of stories of, say, all the bus drivers who had to ferry all the people out of, you know, uh, the, uh, like, outer regions, you know, like, um, Pripyat and places like that, none of them live past 50. Like, for instance, those sort of human costs. And think about what that would do to, uh, to an economy. Think of all the senior people, like, for instance, a doctor who suddenly dies of cancer, you know, I don't know, five years down the line. That would have huge problems like for, that, for those systems. 
Yeah. I like to say that most of the people that cleaned up Chernobyl were, you know, people. So they exposed many, many people to do the job. So they were out of their regular jobs to go work at Chernobyl to clean it up. That they were pulled from all around the Soviet Union. So they had to, you know, leave their jobs behind and, you know, work at Chernobyl, which, you know, also affects the economy. I mean, uh, I am actually a massive fan of nuclear. I mean, I think it is by far the most efficient energy source. I mean, it's been, and uh, it is clean as well. Like, it is eco-friendly. I mean, one of uh, one of the biggest problems with the Russian nuclear reactors is that they cut massive corners. They, like, huge safety things they completely bypassed because, you know, at that time, remember, this is 1980s Soviet Union. Things are not going well. They're doing everything they can to, you know, cut corners, you know, and because of their, like, top, because of their real top-down uh, bureaucracy, people are doing everything they can to, you know, win favor in, in the Kremlin, you know, cutting corners, looking good. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I mean, earlier you were saying that you didn't really understand, you know, I mean, the, like, nuclear science of it all. But, I mean, for instance, they had a 21-year-old. You know, there is many, I mean, I think that part of what happened at Chernobyl, um, something like this was bound to happen, uh, in my opinion, just because of this huge top-down bureaucracy. Like, for instance, um, the whole, this all happened because it was a failed experiment. Well, it was a failed test for the reactor. Um, and even though the whole thing was compromised and what they should have been doing, uh, well, it was compromised for multiple reasons. Uh, let's not go into that. But... And the person who was like the head scientist who had come in to do this, um, he he just wanted to get it done uh, as fast as possible so he he could get a promotion. And I think this is something which you would never find in a free country like, for instance, I don't know America or France, especially France, which has invested heavily into nuclear. They have the cheapest and the cleanest uh, nuclear energy. Well, they have the cleanest power in Europe. I mean, I mean, I mean, compare the compare the um, like. Why? numbers of um, Germany and France. I mean, Germany has gone into much more of the conventional um, green energy like wind, solar, uh, hydro, all that jazz, but they have extremely expensive wind, like extremely expensive power. But uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of nuclear and if I'm waiting for any of opinions. Yeah. Um, I'm waiting for a question in this. Yeah, oh, look, well, I mean... yeah, well, yeah, I'm leading on to this. Do you think that nuclear would be the ideal, um, the ideal solution for climate change? Uh, I think it's maybe potentially a solution, uh, realistically, with, you know, with, um, you know, sort of, you got to remember political motivation and all of it, and you know, even if the science necessarily sort of works out, there are. Um, still still issues with it. Now, I do understand it because it kind of like, uh, oh, you know, it's sort of a, a power station that can provide consistent energy. It isn't that kind of fantastic. Do I see it actually sort of working in a lot of countries around the world? No, um, not not really, because it, it's, it's still sort of a lot harder to set up a nuclear power plant these days, especially with all the regulations, um, all the political hurdles that you'd have to jump through, all of the sort of development hurdles that you'd have to jump through than, you know, a solar farm or a wind farm that has sort of a, a much sort of nice uh, feel-good kind of mentality behind it, which is important when you are making these kinds of plans. It, you know, for the hardcore sort of rational, heartless scientist economists that we kind of pretend to be, it doesn't really make that much sense, but you've still got to remember sort of the, the political will of the people to want to engage with these things and i think look realistically you know nuclear technology is not receiving the same kind of r d that battery storage and and wind and solar is and realistically i i, I sort of foresee that you know um 
these kind of typical, more typical renewables uh, will get to a point where building these kind of plants with sufficient storage to make them sort of a consistent power source is going to be sort of much more cost effective uh, and sort of a much more sort of actionable plan for, for, for you know, good clean energy in the future sort of going forward. Uh, and I don't know, like that. that's obviously, again, I'm not a sort of any kind of an engineer. I don't have any sort of authority to speak on this issue. Um, but I'd say that is going to realistically, and that already is sort of realistically becoming more of uh, sort of what we're seeing. Uh, I don't know. It would, be, it would be pretty nice if... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, the well, connection. No, uh, sickle, sickle it's the farm. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a yeah, farm labor and the industrial worker union. Yeah, it's the tools of like a farmer. A farmer will use a sickle or a scythe to like you know plow their fields yeah. typically, and you know an an industrial worker will just... use their hammer. So it's kind of like the symbol of both of those people. The proletariat, so called. Well, no. I mean. It was it was the 1920s after all. Yeah, and the whole ideology was started up in the 1800s. So, yeah. Nineteen no, hundred. No, nineteenth century, eighteen hundreds. Like Karl Marx was born like eighteen hundred or something. Lisbon, you are very quiet. You've been talked over. So, uh, let Lisbon talk. Okay. You're gonna replace it with a, a jackhammer and a combine harvester. I'm all for like more technology, but having having a flag which has a hammer and sickle, which are kind of like bad tools. Well, I think um, I think uh, this is this is such a random discussion, and it is completely off topic. And I don't, but um, let's go with it anyway. Okay, and, the, and, and, it's, and it's on the flag. Well, look, um, I think a big takeaway is, look, if we were sort of hypothetically looking at a, a jackhammer and a combine harvester, that is more focused on the capital portion of the, the factors of production, whereas a hammer and sickle is the ba most basic type of, of capital that you can kind of have. Um, which means that the power is in the people that are wielding them rather than the power is in the machinery that's using it. Uh, so yeah, no, I think a basic hammer and sickle is the most effective tool to, to signify this, the Soviet regime. And I appreciate you making your cup of tea, but please, for the love of God, do it quietly. Oh my God. I'm so, like, I'm, like, I, um, I, like, I, I completely love you, but just because it's such a random question and it's such like a, a weird sort of jab at the sort of this, this thing you wouldn't like, like normally people attack the Soviet Union based on their fundamentally flawed ideologies or, or, or the devastating sort of human rights abuses, but no, no, you're like, no, nah, you know, I don't care about that, but you're using the wrong flag. You need an electric hammer. I love it. It's hilarious. If you're gonna, if you're gonna like raise that flag, you know, like, 
Polikova of what you believe. And Symbolism yeah, is everything. Just, uh, posted a really, really excellent video guide to hammer types. Maybe they could have. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna put it up here for the YouTube live stream. This is this is what Lisbon just posted. It is a 28 page document um, on the most efficient use of productive like means and why. Oh man, reengineering. What what is this? This 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 just shows someone who's put entirely too much thought into this issue. It's not even, it's not even remotely close to reality, I guess. Like, if you, but if, but if you look at old hammers, they are like that. Uh, if you see like really old hammers at old houses, uh, they they do look like that. The the, the, the feature with the two needles is like a. Well, yes, of course, but. But they chose it in like 1920s. Anyway, this is this has been fun, but uh, does anybody have a question that's not about the hammer that the Soviet Union tried to put on their flag? Why didn't they use a sigh? Oh my god. So I just found an article on uh, red t-shirts actually increase performance in English football players. I posted it. In case anyone would like. Okay, I haven't... Maybe you're getting the accusation wrong. Oh, Just better players wear the red shirts. Hmm. Causation versus. Uh... Are, you, are you saying Manchester United and Liverpool are superior players? No oh boy. That's what I'm getting. Um, I have a question. Yes, <laughs> please, po please, please. Uh, you have a question. Do, do you think goodwill was important in the Soviet Union for the uh, economy? Of it? So, wait. So what was what was important? Uh, goodwill. What's what's Google? Google. People's trust in the government of the economy. Uh, I'm sorry. Do you mind sort of typing it down? I I don't know if it's your microphone being a bit unusual. Goodwill. Uh, oh, oh goodwill. Good goodwill. Good, good yeah, yeah, you're you're kind of mumbling, so it's kind of hard. To... No, no, sorry. That, that that's okay. No, I should have been able to understand. It's just um. I think with all of the people on here, plus my OBS and live stream and like all of that kind of stuff going, it's kind of a bit compressed. Um, yeah, well, I mean, goodwill is sort of effectively uh, really, really important for any economy around the world, not just sort of a socialist nation like the USSR, or, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of kind of ties into the kind of confidence that people have in their society. You know the confidence to start a business or you know save cash in, in the reserve currency of the nation uh and you know that ultimately comes down to to sort of not only goodwill but, but kind of confidence which are effectively sort of one and the same thing if you have confidence in your society you know you, you'll have sort of goodwill in it now um the soviet union probably didn't have goodwill in a sense as it had fear uh, um, you know, a lot of people didn't love uh, their political sort of situation. 
But by golly, no one was ever going to speak out about it because, you know, everyone knew that, you know, Stalin in particular ruled with an iron fist and, you know, going outside of of even sort of towing the line by, by the most sort of meticulous standards uh, could, you know, literally see you and your entire family sent to Siberia, which is you know, more or less just a death sentence. Um, so I'm not sure if, if goodwill would really be the word that I used when describing the Soviet Union, but certainly, um, you know, things like having, um, you know, having confidence, if nothing else, you know, confidence through uh, ungodly amounts of fear, perhaps. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, certainly, you know, goodwill to, to any economy. Otherwise, you know, think where, whereabouts are, are you from, if you don't mind me asking? Denmark. Yeah, okay, Denmark, beautiful. So that's actually a, a fantastic example. I, I would assume that you probably have, you know, a relatively positive, uh, relatively positive relationship with with your your country and you know if not with your particular political party uh, at least you know the government itself yeah you you have confidence that the nation will be around in sort of 50 years you have confidence that if you buy a house or start a business or buy a car the the country will recognize your ownership of those assets you have confidence that you know if you save some money uh, the money's not going to be worthless tomorrow you have confidence that your nation's going to have food and clean drinking water and and you know civil order you know for the next 20 30 100 years oh uh if i can ask a question i'd like to ask uh, do you think after you know the soviet union collapsed uh, the change to a market economy would is should you do it like instantly just you know flip the market economy or should you don't do it in like steps because in uh, like places like uh, Estonia and Russia too but you know in Estonia they, they just flip they just you know throw the old economy out of the window they just put in a new market economy and it worked very well you know Estonia is the best uh, country in the Baltics and you know the economy is growing the most and uh, they actually help population growth and in Russia it like fa- failed drastically because you know they just flipped the market economy and you know Basically, all the old factories, you know, got sold to oligarchs, and now, you know, Russia's being con- controlled by an oligarchy. Yeah, which is a really, really good question. So, um, I actually touched on it more in the economy of modern Russia rather than the economy of the Soviet Union when I was exploring this topic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there is certainly something to be said for having something that's a little bit more gradual. You know, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but stability is the foundation of any good economy. If you w- go to bed, you know, one day with with soup lines and 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 rations and wake up the next day with starbucks and stock markets uh, it's going to be a bit of a rude shock um because it's probably something that you know a lot of the citizens aren't used to they don't know how to participate in that kind of an economy and certainly there is room for exploitation like what we saw in russia um, where you know people that kind of could swoop in that had that kind of political connection took advantage of it uh, and made themselves extremely extremely wealthy uh but uh, it, it probably wasn't necessarily something new. Now, you can do it quickly if you do it well, uh, and you can do it badly if you do it slowly. So I don't think there's any sort of correlation yeah. necessarily between the speed of it, uh, but it certainly should have probably been done a little bit slower than it was in Russia. And I would say, as an example, um, people would sort of say that the outcome of what we saw in China was far more favorable than the outcome of what we saw uh, in Russia. And, you know, uh, I would assume that's sort of the general consensus that China kind of did better with the whole getting over sort of hardcore communism thing than than Russia did. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. And, you know, you, uh, 
about you know go, going gradually you know um, going out of the socialist economy gradually like the country where i'm from latvia you know we did it gradually and now you know the, still the biggest country uh, company in latvia is still owned by the government which is you know latvianergo which is the energy company and it's still owned oh, by the slow government down, slow down. Right, slow down. <laughs> i was speaking a bit too fast okay sorry uh yeah so the biggest company in latvia is still owned by the government and you know other companies are trying you know to break out and they you know we have really big problems with you know breaking out of the uh you know the big companies really control the market so smaller companies have a really hard time to grow so and uh, the government had really big influence because you know when we restored these old companies we but we had before you know the soviet occupation uh, there wasn't really people to give the company so the people that were in power just you know gave them the people that they like not really that you know the people should own it and even if they did give it to the people that uh, you know actually you know the grand grand father was you know the owner of the company they didn't really know what to do with it and just sold it to like a foreign foreign you know foreigner yes uh and yeah and i think look um that is something that is obviously a, a negative outcome and uh it happened it happened certainly in russia and it happened uh you know in china as well but both of those sort of um, developed their, their sort of capitalist economy at different rates. You know, Russia had shock therapy and, and China still effectively kind of calls itself a communist state. Uh, and in terms of countries going through similar sort of changes in parallel, those two would probably be the biggest example that I could think of. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they're sort of not without issues. You know, China today has certainly issues. It's a, you know, authoritarian state by most metrics. It's, um, you know, still got a lot of government influence and government control. And, and while it does on the surface have private industry, a lot of that kind of goes hand in hand with the, the Guanxi, the, you know, the connections that you have, you know, most notably with the Chinese Communist Party. You can't get too far in Chinese business without having that kind of, those kind of connections. So it's still effectively a state ruled by, you know, the, the will of the ruling party. Uh, you know, and certainly the same is true in Russia and, and it wasn't necessarily the speed that determined, you know, the outcome of that. It's just sort of how well they kind of handled the transition. Uh, no one's done it perfectly, but yeah, certainly uh, it couldn't have helped going through it effectively overnight. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of a good question and I can't give anything sort of more uh, specific than that, I'm afraid. Hopefully that doesn't sound like a complete cop out. So, um, okay, so I had like another point to add to uh, what I was sort of talking about before. So someone made like a very, like, it was very clear, they made the point that, oh, they can't have like electric hammers in their flag because they weren't invented yet. But um, here's, a, here's a link to a chat and it's a direct link to a patent registered um, in the United States, to be fair. Anyway, so no one minds that I just go and went ahead and muted him, no. right? <laughs> yeah, I had, I had an actual question. No, oh, he's staff, he can oh, unmute himself. Oh. Wait. Yeah, no is he staff? Yeah. I thought Lisbon was staff. I think he can unmute himself. That's no, scary. Oh well. He's not. No, it's just a booster. Anyway, oh. I have a question uh, regarding China in the future. But it, it's an actual legitimate question, not just shitting on China all day. Uh, which is, they're trying to move into a service-based economy from a manufacturing economy in order to escape the middle income trap. So how do you think that's going to affect developed nations now that China and their 1.4 billion population is moving into the service sector and is probably going to do things cheaper and faster? Uh, how do you think that's going to affect economies like I don't know, Japan or the Netherlands or whatever it may be? Um, so I think it's uh, certainly something that probably will have implications, but 
I don't see it. Oh, God. That's awful. Uh, I don't see it being something that is going to have that huge of an impact because uh, there are sort of nut market economies that have a strong service sector that have already kind of taken over that outsourcing market. So, you know, uh, you, I'm assuming sort of your argument is, uh, you know, obviously more developed nations like Japan, South Korea, United States even tend to be more service-based economies. Uh, and if China develops a service sector, it's going to, to sort of out-compete those other nations. The high, high-tech service sectors, like the, the really high-end service sectors that require a very good, well-educated um, labor force. Right. So things like... Uh, you know, law, you know, high finance, things of that nature. Uh, and I think there are going to be a few limitations that make China probably less scary than even nations like, say, the Philippines or, or in particular India. For starters, not a lot of people in China speak English. Now, to conduct a lot of business and to do a lot of sort of things like high finance or, or very, very high-end services nationwide, um, you kind of need to speak English. That's the kind of universal language if of... I'm not, if, if I'm correct, um, the world usually comes over to Hong Kong to do business, like set up factories in Shenzhen or, or Beijing, and they would, they would first uh, negotiate in Hong Kong because the people there speak English, and, that, and after the negotiations are done, people in Hong Kong will, will fly to, um, to you know, Guangzhou or Shenzhen to, to set up factories there. I believe that's how the Chinese were able to bring in foreign investments without, um, while still being able to control the flow of money. Yeah, and certainly that is something that, you know, that, you know, Hong Kong does very, very well off being a middleman. And there are a few other reasons, um, you know, yeah, why people like, like going, middleman. like going through Hong Kong, you know, tax reasons and obviously certain security reasons, things of that nature, why people do like doing business in Hong Kong. Um, but even sort of besides that, if we're looking at, you know, people that will have the, the, the will or the motivation to outsource their services to China or China just developing a service sector of its own, I, I think actually the Philippines or India is far more sort of threatening for that because they have more of a will to, 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 to get influence um, into the worldwide market, whereas the services in China tend to be focused internally in China. Uh, you know, it's got a big enough domestic market that they can kind of There's... focus internally rather than externally. And, and they just don't speak English. Um, like, only 1% of the population um, speak... From my discussions uh, with, with fellow people uh, from mainland China, they, the reason why China doesn't have uh, a business... A, a city equivalent to Hong Kong where the people can speak really good Chinese simply because the Chinese government doesn't like capital flight. That's why they make Hong Kong a special administrative region. It's for the West to to do business in China, but in like in a, in a democratic side of China. And when when you do that, the, the the people from Hong Kong will move to China to 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 set up factories and create jobs, etc. Without the need of you know um, foreign uh, foreign oversight. I believe that is the case. Yeah, and um, I think we sort of lost sight of the the, um, the sort of question. So to briefly summarize, 
Uh, yeah, you know, China is obviously developing its service sector, and I think primarily that's going to be focused internally. Uh, it's going to be a service sector for the Chinese market rather than the worldwide market. Is it going to be a threat? Right. You know, sure, uh, potentially. Obviously, China is, is hugely influential and it will sort of shake up the, the global business world. But is it going to be something that should everyone should be scared of? And not, not really. I don't think it's even going to have the same kind of impact as, as outsourcing to, you know, manufacturing that China had. So great question. Answer is probably not. No. Um, Mr. Mm, Fish. They're going to go the Japan way or the American way, which is just to create sort of expand their culture globally and make other countries move more towards English as a major or Chinese as a major language because in South Africa right now they're teaching Chinese in school so I don't think it's a problem with the Chinese struggling to learn other languages I think that other countries are going to say wow Chinese services are really good there's a lot of opportunities we should learn that language instead of as an alternative potentially yeah but I think I um, but go and watch actually yeah, I'm going to get off China. I'm going to get off China. Yeah. But look, um, shameless, shameless plug, uh, go and watch the video on India, um, because I sort of do br talk briefly about China and potentially why some of their services and, and you know, their future growth will be limited. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the fact that they don't speak English, but also the fact that people are kind of scared of their government. They don't really understand it. It's a bit kind of weird. And also China has a mentality, you know, kind of a cultural mentality of, you know, if you can cheat your business partners out of, of you know, money or, you know, an investment or something like that, you do it. You know, it's, it's literally a Chinese saying, if you can cheat, then cheat. And people don't like doing business with that kind of mentality. So it's going to be something that's, you know, there's going to be limitations. Anyway. Also a reminder, Chinese would rather save face than save lives. Uh, anyway, yeah, anyway, right. anyway, we're moving on. We're moving on. Um, now, Mahawik over on the YouTube live stream said, uh, is being a democracy good for an economy? Norway was recently ranked by The Economist, the newspaper, as the best working democracy. Is it connected? Yes, um, it, it is. And it's not sort of directly um, because, you know, democracy is inherently good or, you know, all that kind of feel good stuff. What it is more so uh, is that it provides a certain level of stability. Now, there's sort of this, um, now it's anecdotal, of course, and, you know, it, it's sort of an easy way to visualize it. But normally, most sort of democracies around the world tend to have sort of two major parties. You know, in, you know, the United States, it's the Democrats and the Republicans. In Australia here, we have the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. The Liberal Party, strangely enough, is our sort of right-wing government. Uh, you know, in, in the UK, you have the Tories and, uh, and the Labor Party. You know, mostly there's sort of two... Um, you know, parties that sort of hover on either side of centre. Uh, and that sort of means that, you know, whichever way sort of the, the political winds are blowing, um, you kind of have something to, to lean on, uh, whether it's sort of leaning to the right or leaning to the left, you know, it kind of has this inherent stability of the, the, the parties will sort of move uh, to meet the will of the people around sort of the centre. Uh, and what that means is, you know, stability, it's the foundation of a good economy, uh, and that means that you have some kind of consistency. People sort of know that, you know, if, if well, you know, let's say our prime minister or our president dies, well, it's not going to be great, but, um, you know, there are, there are systems in place for taking over from that, and effectively the, the will of the people will be listened to. Our nation's not determined by, you know, what could effectively be a madman that, makes, that takes power. Please, no Trump jokes. Um, so, yes. <laughs> So yeah, so um, yeah, certainly democracies are, and, and not just because um, you know 
they're nice and they feel good and they give people a sense of, of ownership over the nation uh, but because they provide that sort of level of continuous stability uh, that is really uh, crucial for a good economy um, I think I touched on that in um, oh actually in the first video on the in the economy of America uh, which you know again another shameless plug the video on modern america and modern china will be coming out soon so keep an eye out for that but go and watch the first video on the american the economy of the united states because it goes over sort of the, the power of democracies and sort of the influence it has on the economy um in kind of pretty deep detail actually so yeah i think if that's something you're interested in go watch that yeah i have a question yes right how would the euro possibly work it couldn't have been a good idea i think because the every country would have to compete with, with each other directly you know you couldn't take advantage of exchange currency to make cheaper goods and, and that sounds terrible to me um what are they thinking? so yeah uh, it's actually something that has um well i think it's probably a bit of a loaded question Sorry. to say how could the euro work how could it work oh who does have that um okay just gonna mute you of all because you're you're echoing um so the, the euro currently does work i suppose now um of course it has uh its limitations and and one thing that you sort of touched on which is really really interesting is that yeah the economies within the eurozone effectively all have the same currency but they're all very different economies per se you know you have everything from from germany up to let's say uh, i don't know what's the sort of much smaller sort of less developed um i'm gonna sort of throw out portugal because that's the first one that comes to mind um but they're at sort of a very different productive level you know germany's a much more developed economy than portugal is um and that sort of effectively means that the value of their currency should be higher than well okay cyprus sure we'll, we'll take cyprus as an example um and that oh spen yeah there you go. Uh, i have to sort of mute so many people sorry um anyway yeah so that effectively means that their economy can't sort of float freely because it's the same economy now normally what would happen is that the the currency of cyprus or portugal would have a lower value than the, the, the currency of germany uh, which meant if it was to export something um sure it would probably not be of the same kind of standards or uh, it would not be able to sort of do it or, or sort of satisfy you know uh, wealthier participants but because it's you know currency is of lesser value it has sort of that artificial competition built into the price of its currency which gives it you know effectively you know discounted goods on on the open world market which it can't do when it has the euro so let's say you're a producer of you know farm goods in uh, or let's say you you produce i don't know wine in in portugal isn't that lovely um and you want to sort of export yes. your wine on the world market well you have to sell your wine in euros and you know even though you don't have the same kind of capital um you know ability to produce wine as effectively as you know say some other you know competitors out there in the market you would normally say well obviously we're a less developed economy you know we have to pay our workers less and all of that kind of jazz so it's okay we, we can get away with sort of a, a cheaper effective export because we have a currency that's less valuable 
But because we have the same currency as Germany that exports, you know, Porsches and Mercedes-Benz, well, shit, we've got to sort of be as competitive as them on the global export market, and we just can't do that, uh, which is very, very limiting to nations like, you know, Portugal and Cyprus and, and ones that wouldn't be as developed. Uh, which is a major limitation of having a sort of single eurozone. Now, I think the advantages, especially for the continental Europe, uh, of having that single currency probably outweigh those disadvantages, um, but it shouldn't be ignored entirely. So it's a really, really good question. <laughs> oh, yeah, Greece. I should have used Greece yeah, as the yeah, example. I have, so I have like a... Yeah, yeah. Like a yeah. It was kind of tangential to like something else. Uh, like the previous conversation about Michael's kind of screwed. Um, but like, sorry if this is derailing it a bit. Uh, but like, if you I, mention I a goddamn hammer, there's a correlation between like flag design and oh my god, that's it, and, like, that's oh, it. Hang on, <laughs> <laughs> like, nah, nah, <laughs> shoot. Anyway, uh, someone else had a question. I think it was you, Franti. No, no, I just said that if Greece still had the drachma during the recession, they could have devalued their currency. Uh, significantly it could have easier escaped the recession absolutely you're 100 percent right and that's something that um you know probably would have happened naturally uh so let's 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 sort of play that as a hypothetical because i know currency exchanges and, and foreign currency pairs is a very confusing topic uh to a lot of people so um is it something um that yeah let's sort of play it out let's say you know the the you know, the, the Eurozone crisis happened, Greece's economy kind of went to shit. All right, that's not great. Now, what would normally happen during that is, you know, if they had the drachma still, uh, their currency would fall in value pretty sharply, which doesn't seem great. It actually seems like a really bad indicator, but it's kind of like this self-leveling thing um, because, you know, suddenly Greek exports have become cheaper. Which means even though their economy is doing really badly, people that are producing, you know, Greek exports, whatever it is that Greece exports, um, their exports have become sort of artificially more competitive, which means they're able to export more, which means that their economy kind of gets this boost from having a, an artificial advantage in the export market, which means it sort of helps them get back on track. Now, again, because economy, you know, Greece's economy was going shit and they still had, you know, they were still selling stuff in the euro, which was kind of held afloat by like countries like Germany, they didn't have that advantage. So they were kind of, you know, kept underwater in a sense, I suppose. They didn't have that kind of uh, built-in life vest. Uh, also, the tour, also since uh, Greece is a major tourist destination, it would also would have bolstered tourism because good exchange rates mean that more people could afford afford the holiday and inject money into the economy yeah exactly and and um curiously enough tourism is actually an export it's an export industry uh it's you, know, you, you normally sort of picture exports as things that you can load onto a ship and send overseas but tourists are uh, coming to your nation is effectively an export you are sort of giving you know, foreign dollars to a nation and, you know, what you're exporting is an experience within your nation. Uh, so it's one and the same thing, but certainly, you know, as a sort of an easy way of thinking about it, you can kind of think of it as its own thing. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Greece would have become a really attractive place to visit as a tourist if it wasn't for the sort of political instability and all that kind of jazz, uh, because it would have been sort of artificially cheaper. Um, and, you know, outside of major cities, Greece is still a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, I think it, it probably would be sort of much more enticing to a, to a lot of people if it wasn't so goddamn expensive because of the euro. 
But yeah, speaking of currencies, I have that one. Uh, yeah. This is why the euro is really good for the northern countries, but the southern countries all got the shaft with this. From Italy to Spain to Greece to Portugal, every southern European uh, country uh, got the short end of the stick when it comes to these types of things, because they are mostly uncompetitive economies. Yeah, it will certainly compare to some of the big heavy players well, the UK up until recently, obviously, France and Germany. You know, those are big, heavy-hitting economies and, and, you know, sort of being tied to it. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's like the equivalent of, of uh, you know, here's a really good uh, analogy. You know, it's like the equivalent of having, who's a, who's a really, really good soccer player? Like, uh, I, don't know, I don't know anything about sport. Throw some soccer players Ronaldo, at me. Messi. Lionel Messi. All right, yeah. So it's like having Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, you know, I don't know, Beckham back in the day, something like that. You know, you, you know, your three sort of big heavy hitting soccer players and, you know, going to tryouts and going, oh, awesome. Okay. Well, these three kind of carried the team and suddenly we're playing in the English A-League. Well, w also we kind of have all of these sort of, you know, uh, you know, weekend warriors that are kind of a bit out of shape and stuff like that. And sure, we have these three amazing players that kind of got us here, but there's no freaking way we can compete because, you know, we're not really in that kind of level and we're kind of being forced to, to to fight on that level which you know effectively makes it kind of useless which is a very oversimplified analogy and you know i'm terrible at sports metaphors but it's a very effective way of thinking about it for people that are that way inclined yes i sound like captain holt you know you've got too many two-point ducks dunks and now you're taking your basket home yeah <laughs> Oh man, someone someone needs to. I don't know if anyone watches Brooklyn Nine Nine, but that just fantastic. Anyway, yo, I get it. I got the reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I butchered the reference That's even. Yes, and of course, uh, official AG sort of had a really great point, and I sort of touched on it lightly. Um, that yeah, the um, the whole uh, sort of issue of of all of these sort of you know Euro. Uh, currency sort of issues is probably overshadowed by the advantages of having uh, the euro free trade zone could it have been achieved without having a singular currency you know potentially um, but it certainly made it a lot easier and probably gave much more of a benefit than any of the drawbacks so yeah and yeah the uk doesn't use euros it never did uh, and yeah no that's sort of true uh, maybe it's sort of confused it there but you know it still effectively boosted the the european union to, to be a member state um, which it's yeah, rip, I suppose. Uh, no longer. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, don't you think that the euro boosts, like, the tourism? Because, you know, from these rich countries, they can, you know, they have money, so they can go still, they can still go to Greece, you know, and uh, it makes it easier because they don't have to change it for this very, you know, not valuable currency if they would still have their old currency. I'm sorry, what? You just, like, bust a rhyme to that, that question, and I did not oh, hear a goddamn thing. Sorry, I know I speak fast. I'm sorry, but, you know... Uh, I think that the euro might help in these cases because uh, of people from rich countries like Germany, France, they have a big incentive to uh, go to Greece because they have the same currency and, you know, they are much richer. So Greece is not that expensive to them, but if they would have to devalue their currency to change it to this Greek currency that, you know, not, that's, you know, only as good as in Greece, uh, it gives them a big incentive to go, you know, to tourism. So I think, uh, you know, outweighs, the, you know, negatives of you know uh 
how should I say this? Yes, you know, because they have the same currency, it's easier to travel, basically. Uh, yes, sort of. But again, you know, a lot of people that are that are going to be visiting uh, Greece aren't necessarily from Europe. Um, I'm certainly certain a lot of tourists are, but you know, you think of you know American tourists and and tourists from from other nations outside of the European Union. It's uh, not necessarily exclusively people like Germans, French, and you know, Asian invasion. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. Anyway, a question over on the YouTube uh, live stream. This the sausage. Finally, a name I can pronounce. Uh, in your opinion, which country in the EU has the worst economy? Ooh. Um, well, that's a loaded question. I mean, it would be sort of hard to say um, anything outside of probably Greece, of course. You know, it's probably the, the biggest one that kind of comes to mind. Uh, but, you know, let's see what happens to the UK in, in the next uh, four or five months. Yeah, the Balkans are not doing that well economically. I mean, yeah. you know, the Baltics do, except for Estonia. Yeah, and, and actually sort of what's funny is a lot of these ex-sort um, of socialist states are actually kind of doing quite well. Oh. Uh, you know Estonia is doing well, but you know, you know, we have a lot of growth, but it doesn't really translate to having a lot of money because, you know, if you're growing out of, you know, like a dumpster fire, it's like, you know, well, we're marginally better, you know, our average income is like three times smaller than the average in the EU, but, you know, like last year we had it six times smaller than, you know, it's... It, you know, it doesn't change that much if you have this, you know, growth, which is like 2% per year, but, you know, it doesn't change that much if you're, you know, growing from a really, you know, bad state. Yeah, but, I mean, improvement is still improvement, so... Um, yeah, improvement is still Yeah, and certainly, you know, these economies that are poorer sort of certainly have more headroom for aggressive growth, but it tends to bring them in line with, you know, sort of wealthier economies, and it's certainly nothing to be ignored. You, you want growth um, because it improves I mean... quality of life. You're, you're from Estonia. You basically went in a few years' time from... Uh, you're, talking, you're Estonian, no? I am not, I'm not an Estonian, I'm Latvian. Uh, Estonia okay, yeah, is very good. Yeah. So the, the thing about the Baltic nations, you went from receiving aid to giving out aid, foreign aid. So that's that I would consider a great achievement. Uh, it's you know if you if you look at it like that yeah you might think that but if you live here and you see all the problems like the abandoned buildings you know that we cannot even pay p pensions to our pensioners and you know our uh, doctors are writing because they're not getting paid enough you know we literally do not have enough money to pay the ambulance drivers so they're leaving the country and we, if we call the ambulance we're not sure if they're going to come because you know they're not getting paid <laughs> so it's you know not that it, great that's more of a resource allocation problem that's true because we have a lot, a lot, of lot, of lot of corruption. But you know, that, that sounds like we have a lot, of lot of money. We have a lot of debt, and you know, every every year our you know GDP. Uh, like... Your debt ratio isn't so bad. It's not that bad. I mean, know. look at friends. They are they are almost over one hundred percent debt to GDP ratio. Oh, uh, we are three times over. Oh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> GDP three times over. No, I don't uh, think that you have. It's pretty bad uh and you know and we make these like really expensive projects that we never can afford like we, we uh, built a bridge we... for a billion euros latvia yes we have like one of the most expensive bridges in europe and you know it's, it's like not that impressive even it's just... you it only had 36 percent debt to gdp ratio that's really good well yeah 
it, it might look like that, you know, from because, but if you live here, it's not that great. And you see, you know, how, how people are really struggling, especially the old generations. You know, and well, I think, uh, well, what's going to give us a good? Are we talking about how great communism is? Uh, yes, communism is great, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's Never give us better under Russia. Yeah, I mean, no, the... it's like, uh, under Russia we had like, our GDP was about 40 billion dollars, now it's about 60 billion dollars, so yeah, we are better off by, you know, 20 billion, That that's not bad. That That is considerable. That's like 50%. Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. So, so it's better. It's not worse in any case. Well, uh, what it tells me that you had 30 billion uh, when you got independent, mm -hmm. and now you are at no, you had five billion, and now you have 30 billion. Up, it's not. You know, it's uh, the GDP. It's uh, the you know the uh, budget of the year is like 10 billion. The budget, you know, that we actually spend. 20 billion goes, you know, it's not, you know, the GDP is not how much money you have, it's all, also the transactions and all the other stuff. And with the money we, we have, you know, those 10 billions, we, we, 10 billion dollars, we cannot pay for everything, you know, like these services, you know, and public health and, you know, pensions and uh, road networks, for, and the road networks are horrendous. There's one good road that, you know, connects us to Europe and that's it. You know, I, I always think it's weird how like even after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Americans get really scared about Russia. When, if you look at the numbers, Russia's GDP is comparable to Mexico. Yeah, that, that's true. But they have a really big and scary military. That that's a scary part. You know, like you know the aggressive actions in like places like the Ukraine. You know, the U.S. doesn't want to commit to a war, especially a big war. Hey, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. How should I tell this? It's mostly just uh, roast tinted glasses to the past. It, it, it just appears that, that it's worse, but it's way better. Yeah. If we take the objective measurements, it's not how we perceive our environment. Hey, has, um, so I heard Putin uh, tendered the resignations of like all of his cabinet and stuff. Did he like make himself emperor or something? No, he just wants to revise the constitution. I have two ideas. I will just go. He, he will write the constitution that you can serve more than two terms in a row. Or he will make the parliament parliament really strong because you know Russia is like America. You know the president is the most important person in the country, but you know in other places it's the parliament that is the most important thing in the country. So if he makes himself prime minister, you know prime minister, you can be prime minister how many years in a row you want. So if the parliament is the strongest thing in the country and you are prime minister, you're, you're still the most important person in the country. And you know it's not important to be president for like you know however you know for every term and like you can bypass the system like that. He's just thinking of ways how to keep power. He's Putin's kind of. I mean, I guess he's not a battle for a world leader, but he is like in his sixties now, isn't he? He's pretty old, yes. I feel like regarding his in general, at the effect they've had economically, like all of the world has a huge effect on Europe, and 
with this idea that wages are kind of very much in pressure due to the East having a highly educated population that was largely ununionized and a lot of countries basically doing shock therapy in their economics. I was wondering how the fall of the wall and the economics effects are actually perceived from the Baltic countries and other countries in Eastern Europe. How the fall of the Union? Yeah, oh. the, the fall of the wall. Now, of course, I don't know how old we are, so for all I know, oh, no, we've oh. never met all, but... Oh. No, no, no. Well, no, it's, it's, per it's perceived positively, of course. You know, all you know, we had like this big event. You know, in Baltics, the biggest event was the, you know, the Baltic Wall, where you know people from uh, each capital held hands, you know, and making this high giant human wave of people just holding hands, you know, not letting you know the Russians come in, and you know, very, it was a peace. It was very many peaceful demonstrations. You know, we never like aggressively attacked. It, the whole thing started because in Lithuania there were these uh, peaceful protestations, and uh, the Soviets uh, just you know took tanks and ran people people over with tanks. You know, and the, like ten people died from uh, the Soviet attacks on you know just peaceful protesters, and then basically the whole Bal Baltics you know just started protesting everywhere. Uh, there were you know attempts by the Soviets to take the, these places back, but you know. They, they understood that much if they were going to start shooting just, you know, civilians, you know, it doesn't, not, we're not going to like them, we, you know, we wanted them to obey and there wasn't much they, that, that they could do to keep us in the Soviet Union, so, that, you know, they tried, but, you know, uh, I mean, in some cases they kind of succeeded, but, uh, you know, the, 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 what, what, what they wanted to happen, you know, there was this, uh, you know, they wanted to make a revolution in Russia, in Russia there was, you know, the parliament, and uh, there were, you know, the communist parliament, and there was another communist parliament that wanted to take power, and that, uh, that you know, the other communist uh, parliament, you know, it, uh, the, you know, there were two parliament, you know, there were, t I, I'm, I'm bad at explaining things. Now, let me, you know, collect my thoughts. There were two parliaments, you know, there were two opposing sides in Russia. One was, you know, uh, we want to stay like we are, we want to be this big Soviet Union, and the other one was Yeltsin's parliament, which was like, we want to be an independent Russia, we want freedom, we want uh, a dem democracy, we want uh, liberal markets, and the other one wanted to keep it as it is, so the other one tried a military coup, which failed, and that means that all the Baltic countries, all the Balkan countries got to be free because, you know, the military coup in Russia failed, so every other military coup in every other uh, these minor countries, it also failed. Um, I'm going to hijack. Sorry, the discussion because it, it's it's actually probably no problem. We got to Eastern European states, uh, states, which is about as close to the uh, Soviet Union as we've got during this entire Q and A session. So we're slowly moving our way closer to uh, the actual USSR, I suppose. Um, but um, sorry, uh, a question again over on the YouTube live stream was, um, I mentioned in the video sort of GDP growth and I touched sort of lightly on the, the limitations of GDP as a measure um, and uh, Luis Castro sort of said, what about GDP growth that doesn't affect the average person? The improvements only makes oligarchs richer, uh, which again is, is probably a, an issue sort of more directed towards um, post-Soviet Russia uh, in terms of oligarchs, but certainly was an issue internally in the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union in 1991, you know, when it was sort of disbanding, was still the second largest economy in the world by GDP. But GDP wasn't really a good measure of how wealthy the nation is, and certainly it probably isn't necessarily the only measure of how prosperous a nation is that people should look at, but it is. Most economists, myself included, will look at GDP figures as sort of this gospel sort of 
you know, benchmark of the economy about how sort of uh, effective and how prosperous uh, that nation is. But I have a really sort of funny anecdote, and, and apologies to the people that have heard this joke before, but I'm going to sort of tell you anyway. Um, so it, it kind of goes that two economists, you know, Paul Krugman and Ben Bernanke, are walking down a, 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 a farm road. Uh, and Ben Bernanke said to, to Paul Krugman, look, uh, I'll, I'll give you $20,000 if you eat that pile of bullcrap there sort of sitting beside the, the road. And, you know, Ben Bernanke thinks, is it, you know, it's going to be disgusting, but $20,000 is $20,000. Hey, you know what? I'll, I'll take it. I'll eat that pile of bullcrap. You know what? And I, I'd imagine that most people here on the, the Discord server would probably do the same thing if offered $20,000. Yeah, I know I would. Anyway. So, uh, so, so Ben Bernanke eats a pile of bullcrap and, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty gross, but hey, you know what? He's $20,000 richer. So they continue walking down the road and there's a, another bull that sort of leaves a, a nastier looking crap on the side of the road. And, you know, uh, Ben Bernanke says to, to uh, Paul Krugman, hey, hey, Krugman, I'll, I'll give you $20,000 if you eat that pile of bullcrap. And, you know, uh, he goes, well, you know, I just lost $20,000. I could probably do with it back, I suppose. And and that uh well stop that uh and uh you know i think if we can we can do that and you know why not i'll get my twenty thousand dollars back anyway so he eats a pile of bullcrap and he gets twenty thousand dollars so fantastic and you know paul krugman's kind of saying well i, I feel terrible now i i'm feeling pretty crap we, we both ate bullcrap and and neither of us are any richer for it and ben bernanke turns around and sort of says you're missing the bigger picture though we increased gdp by forty thousand dollars and created two jobs which is effectively true uh, by GDP estimates and, and certainly by employment estimates by sort of a traditional measure. If people were to do this, they are increasing GDP by $40,000 by basically flicking money back and forth and doing useless menial tasks, uh, which is a huge limitation of GDP figures. Now, of course, in aggregate, which is what macroeconomists look at, which is what sort of GDP figures are, they're macro figures. Um, these kinds of isolated anomalies aren't going to make up an indicative amount of the, you know, transactions in an economy. But there are still economies like the USSR where lots of money trades back and forth between huge populations, which means that they have a bigger GDP figure. The other thing is, if you have a large population, like let's say China, that means that more money is going to be trading hands back and forth between more people because you have more people. It doesn't necessarily mean you have more prosperity, but that makes your GDP figure look bigger. Um, you know, just by virtue of having more hands to sort of flick money back and forth between. So GDP oh. is probably, um, it's a good benchmark, but uh, economists should really consider that there are limitations in that figure as of limitations with all other models and indicators of, of an economy. Uh, and it shouldn't be looked at in isolation. And a lot of economists, my, myself included, do fall into the trap of, you know, looking at GDP figures or, you know, me, even sort of GDP PPP figures and saying, yep, you know, that's sort of a benchmark of how prosperous a nation is, uh, which isn't always necessarily true. Now, to answer the question where a lot of it was going to oligarchs, yep, you'd have to consider GDP figures uh, and also income inequality to, to look at issues like that. Um, but you'd also sort of really have to track, you know, the general prosperity of a nation to get an idea of, of to, you know, general living standards and also sort of indicative growth in the nation itself. So yeah, I mean, that's um, something that I will explore sort of more deeply in a video coming up really soon, sort of the limitations of GDP. Um, but it's something that's really interesting to bring up, especially in relation to, to Soviet Russia. Uh, so anyway, someone had a question to go on from that. 
if I remember correctly, the value of the Russian currency during the times of the Soviet Union was basically worth nothing on the international market. So it only traded hands internally. So they had to trade goods for goods instead of using currency for trading. Well, I, I think I remember that was the how they traded vodka for Pepsi. <laughs> well, yes and no, in a sense, you know, uh, a currency is a function of the value of the resources that you can trade as, as well as sort of the amount of uh, the currency that you have and, and sort of how much is flowing around the economy. It's a sort of complicated thing. Um, but the big sort of reason that, that uh, I don't know who's rumbling in the background. Uh, whose mic is that in the background? I think it was you, Kelvin, so I'm just going to mute you. Um, it is also something that you have to consider um, that, you know, the Soviet Union was a heavily sanctioned nation uh, up until its fall in 1991. And in the same way that, uh, you know, potentially the, the currency of North Korea has value internally. You know, if you had a million North Korean whatever it is, um, actually, I don't know what it is. I should probably know that. But anyway, a million North Korean whatever. Okay. Uh, you could go into North Korea and probably buy something of value and take it home and it would probably be worth something But not many people are willing to recognize um, the, the currency of North Korea because it's not very universally usable because it's such a heavily sanctioned nation You can't really use North Korean anything for anything So, you know, no one's really gonna want to accept it in the same way that you know uh, If let's say someone came to you tomorrow and a majority of people here on this Discord server aren't from America But if someone came in with ten thousand US dollars cash and was willing to pay you that for you know over market odds for let's say your your car or something like that you know most people would say okay well it's a little bit annoying um but i'll take it because um i know that you know american cash is is very easily exchangeable for my local currency and you know it, it's pretty universally recognized i still have a lot of faith in it you know, when it comes to north korean whatever or, or russian you know soviet rubles then people are like well no one's going to recognize this there are laws around how you can use this this is coming from a sanctioned country i don't really want to take this i don't want to accept it i'm not going to be able to do anything with it and that's also a determinant of sort of the value of that currency uh, so I think that's got more to do with it rather than sort of any inherent issues with the currency itself. Uh, so I wanted to get to the party, you know, they traded uh, Pepsi for basically uh, the Russian Navy. So they basically gave the Pepsi Corporation the fourth largest Navy in the world for a while because they didn't have anything to trade for it. So they just basically uh, scrapped a bunch of uh, warships and gave it to the Pepsi Corporation. <laughs> That's pretty funny, though. I wonder what Pepsi did with it. I wonder if they started their own vodka vodka brand. Did you actually they know? They could basically invade the small island nation. Ooh. I'm going to tell you, fourth largest navy in the world for a small brief period of time was at the Pepsi Corporation. Oh my god. Uh, someone designed... Uh, 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 someone, uh, someone designed a flag for the Pepsi Navy. If you want to go back to the uh, flag discussions. <laughs> oh Lord. I was actually wondering because uh, um, I think another thing that might be very relevant when it comes to the Soviet Union is the impact their economy might have had, and also government spending. For example, if you look at domains like healthcare, back when. Um, the Soviet Union started, I think most countries basically had 
government healthcare in its infancy. I mean, basically, at least around here in Belgium, you just had a doctor in the village who might maybe do some goodwill for some workers or farmers, and that was about it. But in Russia, they started like the whole, they have one of the largest pediatric hospitals back in the day. Um, and they did a lot of expenses in healthcare, for example, that might kind of have boosted um, high education jobs. And economics in a way a while before these were not very relevant domains is this something you've got any opinion about sorry repeat the question i completely uh zoned out to drink some water oh yeah sorry <laughs> i might also know i've been completely consistent now as asking my question basically if soviet union had a higher impact than just seizing the means of production like one of the things that was very important to just even hold any kind of economy or, or stuff like public health and they were pioneers when it comes to domains like pediatrics um did these things these kind of services that were very vital for basically the health of the country did these not have come some kind of economic impact because i do know that world world war ii um western europe did need this kind of equivalent it did need a way to also keep their population happy and healthy for example yeah, and I think, um, you know, when, when everything else is falling apart, you know, making sure that your population is well-fed and well-looked after was certainly a linchpin. And, and it's kind of interesting not only um, because I can't really speak with much authority in terms of what that meant for the Soviet Union, but uh, when you look at countries like Cuba, uh, you know, Cuba is obviously, you know, a communist nation that's sort of closed off and, and, you know, sanctioned even by the United States, which is normally something that kind of leads to, to huge economic t- Downturns and issues, um, but it kind of chugs along, and surprisingly enough, it has this really fantastic healthcare system. Um, you know, everything else in the the, the nation's about how you're doing, uh, but uh, yeah, it's sort of one of those remarkable things that uh, you know, social healthcare systems kind of in these nations tend to get done right. Um, which is, I don't know, I don't know if there's sort of anything to be said about it, but it's a curious kind of side effect, if nothing else, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that, that's another thing as well. Cyril sort of pointed out because they're sort of public servants, doctors, it's, you know, one twentieth the wage of, of what taxi drivers get because taxi drivers are one of the few um, professions in Cuba where you can be privately employed, which is quite interesting. Do you think Venezuela can recover within the next 100 years? Um, yeah, oh, sorry, that was also a question over on the YouTube live stream. I... Yeah, believe so, of course. Uh, you know, most nations can kind of turn themselves around within a sort of time frame of about 20 years. Uh, but of course, there are sort of inherent political corruption issues, uh, as well as sort of the issues now of sanctions from the wider community. But I think if it hey, installed sort of a, a government that was a little bit more stable, um, sort of did some productive, you know, uh, made some productive steps into divesting from, you know, just oil wealth. Yeah, it could certainly do very well. It has the capacity. I mean, it, it still has a whole lot of oil, which gives it um, much more of an advantage than, than a lot of other nations the kind world, of have. The world's largest oil reserve, proven oil reserve. And that's right. Saudi Arabia. And that sort of gives it a lot of flexibility to, to sort of, you know, obviously, um, it can't live like a, a freshly signed NFL player um, can you know when it gets it but it needs to sort of invest that into something that's going to give yeah. it ongoing prosperity and certainly it'll be able to turn itself around it's in a much better position than uh, most other nations to do so 
Yeah, I think also the problem in Venezuela is that it tries to integrate itself with the rest of uh, South American nations. But the problem is it has a basically a big jungle between them and Brazil. So the best way Venezuela could be integrated is towards America and not to uh, South America, if you get what I'm saying. Potentially, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I mean, that's... Sort South of America has a huge geographic challenge. And because of the Andes Mountains and the Amazonas. Uh, and, oh, I mean, look, it's basically I'm, cut into two. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a geographer. I can't really speak with much authority on there. But I think it needs to get some trading partners because it's... It's most fundamental level. It's an export economy uh, at the moment. It, it needs to export its oil, and then it needs to work on its own domestic market instead of just spending all that money and, and throwing it at its citizens. It needs to do something productive with it. But yeah, if it can get that right, certainly uh, it can turn itself around. Hopefully, it just does so before all of the oil runs out. Because if it doesn't do that, well, yep, that's that's screwed. Um, but uh, you know, I guess it's like every other nation on Earth, apart from sort of the developed nations or other sort of lucky nations. So. Um, you know, it, it, it's got a serious leg up over, you know, a country like Cyprus, let's say. Um, but, you know, we'll sort of see what it does with it. All right, so I'm going to answer one more question because it is 2 a.m. still, and I do need to get to bed. It is still bedtime, even though I've got a day off tomorrow, which is lovely. Um, so... another Q&A tomorrow? <laughs> no. Actually, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to be working on actually another video that I've been meaning to do. So uh, no rest for the wicked, I suppose, but uh, I do, I do want a little bit of rest. So uh, one last question, make it a good one. Should get some rest. I have one USSR related question, but unless there's someone else has something USSR. Yes. Someone, someone, someone who was quiet had it in the background. So everyone be quiet apart from Mr. Quiet Man who had a question. Yeah, yeah, you're Mr. Quiet Man. There you go. Okay. Uh, that's be, uh, yeah, yes, that's off-topic uh, question, though it's more of a commentary, so I, I rather want to hear your opinion. Uh, one of the things I rarely heard uh, discussed is, um, like, when you talk to the older people here in post-Soviet countries, like, they are a bit nostalgic about the old times, like everything was cheaper, like scarily cheaper, like it's not like uh, that now. So, but interesting, when they talk about that, uh, uh, they also mention things like deficits, like certain things just, you could find them in one region and you couldn't find them at all in the other region. So what happened? Like, if you want some rare or praised or uh, prestigious goods, you had to get to travel somewhere and somehow get it because it was there. It wasn't very like, it, it wasn't like capitalist economy like today. So, interesting part of that was like there was so, some sort of meta-nepotism, uh, like I call it, like uh, you didn't have to be someone, somebody, uh, like uh, someone's aunt's uh, nephew to get some service or help or something to get a gift or uh, a place in a hotel because 
as long as you can get uh, a gift from your region, something rare in the other place, you can get that service done to you or something like that. So it was a to, like it was a barter economy attached to the existing economy, but for rare commodities. Yeah, people, people. People sought out a market beyond what they were allowed to, because effectively they didn't—they weren't allowed to trade with currency because that was capitalistic. So they traded with, you know, things that they held of value that that was sort of separate, like a black market outside of Soviet control, and that is certainly um, something that's super interesting and something that I actually wanted to explore in another country video. So, but thanks for bringing it up and kind of ruining it for everyone. No, nah, no, I'm joking. Um, but it is certainly uh, something that is a very interesting, sort of an interesting phenomenon where you sort of see, well. Hang on, I don't have cash that I can trade with, but I can, I don't know, bring this fine bottle of vodka that's exclusive to my region and, you know, the government doesn't really know about it and I can trade it for, uh, I don't know, this, this nice car or, or something like that um, with someone else and, and it effectively makes sort of a barter economy, which is uh, certainly an interesting phenomenon. Uh, now, as for people talking about the good old days of the Soviet Union, dear God. Good old days. Um, I, whoa, I mean, um, I actually... Uh, it's not so much. I, I haven't had that much exposure to it um, in the Soviet Union. I, I certainly hope that no one longs for the days of, of you know, Stalinist rule. But um, it is an interesting phenomenon in China. There's sort of this this lost generation of you know, it's basically like sort of a little bit older than baby boomers, I suppose, um, that that are you know sort of too old to work now in in New China. Um, but mm -hmm. were kind of live their lives throughout the, you know, their working lives throughout the, the, the communist kind of rule where it was, you know, very much a totalitarian centrally planned economy. And they're a little bit bitter because um, it was, they kind of had to live through the tough times, but they never got the opportunity to sort of be rich and prosperous and work in these new and developing industries. So they were kind of left behind a little bit. And certainly, you know, their children had the opportunity to do that, but if they didn't have children or children that didn't look after them, they kind of got left behind. And, you know, certainly these kind of people would miss the times where, you know, everyone was kind of equal because, you know, effectively they got left behind. So I wonder if it was sort of just an extension of, of that. Uh, and that is something that, you know, yeah, I think so a lot of people. About extended families, uh, do you believe that capitalism is the cause of the the, the nuclear family being uh, demolished? The nuclear the nuclear family structure, if you know what the nuclear family is. No, it's no, basically... I, I think that's they're more social issues. I mean, there there are capitalist economies where um, you know they have very very high birth rates, and there are. You know, there are socialist economies where you have uh, extremely low birth rates. I don't think there's that strong of a correlation between how capitalist a market is and, okay. and how high the birth rates are. But, you know, certainly you have to sort of look at people uh, being empowered to have children, you know, sort of the economic drawbacks, certainly, of having children, um, the societal drawbacks. You know, a lot of people, sort of, especially with, you know, the movement towards empowering women in the workplace, you know, people don't want to have that kind of burden of, of having uh having children i think that has more to do with it rather than you know purely oh it's a capitalistic market therefore that equals no baby um as with everything uh it's it's in the nuance anyway bedtime for me thank you for um participating in the stream uh thank you everyone for uh coming along continue the conversation amongst yourselves um but uh, other than that good night guys see you see you